Welcome to A History of Financial Markets. This is Season 1, Episode 4. My name is Ryan Henderson. I am here with Brett Schaefer. Uh, and on this show, we are going to set the stage for the Panic of 1907. So even though it is in 1907, we know that turmoil in financial markets doesn't happen instantly. So this is kind of the preemptive, what was happening, what was the buildup. Uh, and this is also why we've talked about the trusts and big complex financial systems and how that the whole banking system was set up because all that's intertwined here. And so why don't you give a little more context, uh, what was kind of going on at the time? Um, yeah. So uh, in 1904 to 1906, the Dow Jones doubled. Just to give a brief overview of what you know stocks were doing at the time, definitely on a heater. Uh, all the speculators were doing well. Um, and as we know, historically, when the markets start doing well. It's kind of a feedback loop where everyone tries to get in on the action. Uh, we know the, the classic line, be greedy when others are fearful. Well, the greed happens when a lot of people are making money. And by 1906, um, there was a lot of money being made on the stock market. And then we'll give some updates on kind of what happened in that year. And then we'll go to the early part of 1907. I think this episode finishes in the summer of 1907. So right before the actual panic happened in October. That was when all the big events happened. I think one of the episodes will cover like a one-week period in October. But yeah, we'll start in 1906 here. So Secretary of the Treasury, Leslie M. Shaw, uh, this is just kind of a good background. He was believed, or he believed in active intervention into the money market. So I thought this was interesting because even in 1906, he was a proponent of, you know, injecting money into the system. Stimulus to ensure the continuance of prosperity. Uh, he was, I guess, very forward-thinking in that because that's kind of been the standard since uh, after the Great Depression. But in reality, that didn't become a mainstream thing that a lot of politicians and you know Treasury secretaries wanted to do at the time. Um, and another fun fact, Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers underwrote the $10 million offering for Sears Roebuck. That'll make you feel old. Was Sears Roebuck? Is that just Sears? That's Sears, yeah. That's their, that was the, that's their name. What's so, the Roebuck? Uh, I, I'm not sure what Sears Roebuck was, like the Roebuck in the name meant, but... I didn't know it was introduced in 1906. Well, they were basically the Amazon of the day. They were mail order catalogs. I kind of followed the same playbook as Amazon did today they, because, you know, there was the roads getting built out and stuff like that, and it was tough for people to get stuff and go to the stores because not everyone owned cars. So they actually got stuff delivered by mail. But it was a little... <laughs> they didn't, I don't think they had two-day shipping. But back to the story. So Standard Oil was indicted at the time on 500 counts of illegal rebates and fined $29 million, which multiply that by 30 for today's dollars in inflation. And you have to realize that real GDP was a lot lower. So this is a pretty big deal, a $29 million fine. Uh, during 1906, there was a mining craze that had arisen. Very classic. Uh, this could be about any... I guess this could be this happens every decade. Crypto mining, crypto, yeah. Well, there was no there was no cryptocurrencies back then, but speculators were buying shares of worthless silver and miner gold miners in droves. As again, this happens all the time. I don't think there's more money. There's so much money lost in silver and mining stocks. Uh, but on January fourth, nineteen oh six, Jacob Schiff, who is a senior partner at Coon and Loeb, one of the largest banks or investment banks out there, he said, quote, the money market conditions which had prevailed the previous 60 days are a disgrace to the country, and that unless our currency system was reformed, a panic would sooner or later result compared with, with which all previous panics 
would seem like child's play. This is from the Panic of 1907 book, which is a good read. It probably is really where I did all my research on this thing. Um, and he will see that he was quite right. Um, any thoughts on that? You know, he was a perma bear. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if he was a perma bear. He was right in this case, uh, and people <laughs> may have been. Uh, I don't know. Like back then, it's probably acted a little different because you just kind of saw all this stuff in the newspaper. But if there was CNBC, then I think it, throughout 1906 and the beginning of 1907, they'd have been like, oh, this Jacob Schiff guy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. We're at a permanent plateau. We've solved recessions, all that stuff. And uh, one note, though, you have to remember that trusts were not required to hold any reserves on deposits until this year. So they had found that loophole. I, I don't know if you want to call it a loophole, but they could act as a bank. But until 1906, they were not required to hold any reserves on deposits. That made them very fragile. Yeah. What uh, what did kind of America look like at the time? Because, I don't know, it always helps to give context. There was only 1% of the people that were in the market. So what did it look like for the average person? Any other anecdotes? Uh, I guess a big event. I guess, okay, first, anecdotes on people. Um, the average life expense expectancy was 47, so a lot lower. Uh, than it is today. Only 14% of the U.S. homes had a bathtub. So they had, wait, so they had to compound faster. So speculation. <laughs> speculation, is yeah, you're right. <laughs> I guess that is true. I did not think of that. Uh, so yeah, only life expectancy was 47. Only 14% of U.S. homes had a bathtub. Uh, so growing a dressable market for showers and bathtubs and heaters. Uh, only 8% had a telephone. Uh, the, there was a huge boom over the next few decades of just lining up telephone wires. You could see. Uh, in cities, there was old pictures of just telephone wires, like hundreds and hundreds of them going across like balconies, you know, and stuff like that across streets and things. Mm. Uh, so there was a big boom in that then. But at the time, uh, it was really more of a luxury for the upper middle class. Uh, I guess some more events. San Francisco earthquake was probably the biggest thing to happen in this time. It happened in 1906. It killed 3,000 people and left 300,000 people homeless. Wow. And there are some historians uh, that think or have connected dots to this impacting the financial panic of 1907. It kind of weakened the system because, remember, San Francisco was a financial hub. Um, growing. Sorry? It was a growing financial hub. Yeah, so as the West Coast is becoming the New York of the West Coast, kind of, and they were really separate at the time. I mean, I have a fact here that Alabama at the time had a larger population than California, so California isn't as important as it is today. But there was a lot of growth there, a lot of new investment. And with this earthquake, with the city just totally crumbling, um, I, I bet that halted a lot of plans and stuff. A lot of people were probably ruined by it. Yeah, it probably took a lot of money from the markets as well. Yeah, a lot of uh, it, it probably, you know, things were going on steady, growth or whatever, laying down railroads, laying down roads, and then this kind of just threw a wrench into the system. Um, I guess another thing going on at the time we've mentioned before is the Panama Canal. So this was a huge project that is continually being constructed. I think it takes 14 or 12 years to get it all done. Um, and then on April 17th, 1907, this was the busiest day on Ellis Island ever. Uh, so the immigration into the United States from Europe and other countries are at a total like high. I think 1907 was the largest year ever for Ellis Island specifically, where 1.1 million immigrants are coming in. So there's a why. huge flow. Well, I mean, what was happening in Europe at the time? Uh, I don't remember. I bet a lot of people know, but that's not something I uh, I can remember off the top of my head. There, uh, just know that. From like 1890 to 1910, there was a huge boom in immigration from Europe to the United States. I don't know what drove that. It might have been the steamship. 
It might have been just technology of getting people across the ocean was a lot easier then, but I'm not sure. There's actually a good book called City of Dreams that kind of chronicles like an immigrant's uh, path to America at the time. At this, like, I from Europe. I think it takes the exact same. uh, It's in like the 1907 time frame. I bet. Yeah, I don't want to say for sure, but I bet it had something to do with it getting easier to get to the United States. You know, going across the Atlantic. Okay. Uh, Any other big notes? No, nothing on there, and then we'll probably hit up to 1907 here. Um, We'll go probably halfway through this and then take a break. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds good. All right, so right at the time, 6,000 new state banks had formed over the past decade, so there's a lot of, just a ton of different banks. You have to remember, you have to be geographically isolated almost because it's hard to do things. Everything wasn't digitally connected. Uh, So there's so many banks getting built, and they're just all individual ones for these towns or cities. And then there was also 1,500 trust companies in the United States. These were more opaque financial institutions, and it's where upper middle class and rich people could deposit their money with hopefully getting the ability to, you know, pool assets and get a higher rate of return. I think a lot of them market like a 6% return annually or something like that. Uh, So they're almost like investment funds or mutual funds of the day but a little bit different where they're kind of acting as a bank with a higher rate of interest. And uh, there wasn't, I mean, there wasn't any regulation on that. So the, the trust could kind of do what they wanted. Um, and then at the start of 1907, Roosevelt had sued 40 corporations under the Sherman Act. So the antitrust stuff was coming uh, really hot right then. It was kind of like Teddy Roosevelt was going all about it. And in March, when did he, uh, when was he announced president again? 1901. It was after the McKinley assassination. So, so he's, he's been in throughout this whole he's time. He served two period. terms. Yeah. To what, like 1908, 1909? 1909, I guess, yeah, he didn't get elected in 1908. And then he ran again. He was allowed to run again in, I think, 1912, but he didn't win. Um, there's a whole different historical aspect with that. He started the Bull Moose Party, uh, which is like a. Wait, he served, he, he tried. That would have been what, three terms? Yeah. So, well, back then you were allowed to run for more than. One term, it wasn't a rule, remember, it was just kind of a thing. And then FDR, he ran for four, and then after that, they made it a rule where you could only run for two. Even, like, mm. it was kind of like a um, card, not a card, it was a sin or whatever, you know, like, people were like, well, you only run for two terms. Okay. Uh, but you technically weren't stopped from running from three uh, okay. during that time here. But he also served half a term. It was very confusing, uh, his, his runs. But, yeah, the, I guess in March 1907, uh, is kind of when things kind of took a tumble. I don't know why things always happen in March. <laughs> Maybe we're just looking at a few points Recent here, but bias. the uh, it seems that bad things always happen in March. You saw March two thousand, March two thousand eight, March twenty twenty, March two thousand twenty, and March nineteen oh seven, where th- where things are starting to slide. Um, I guess shares of all listed stocks fell nine point eight percent. They gave that that gave investors kind of a bit of a pause. Um, there wasn't any reason for that. Again, it could have been the San Francisco earthquake. Kind of just happened. Uh, shipping was hit the hardest. It was down 16.6%. And J.P. Morgan Jr. on March 14th, 1907 said, The whole situation is most mysterious. Undoubtedly, many men who are very rich have become much poorer, but as there seems to be no one breaking, perhaps we, we shall get off with the right with fright only. He, uh, those words would not uh, end up... I don't know. He, That's J.P. Morgan Jr.? J.P. Morgan Jr. This is, yeah, J.P. Morgan's son. Uh, is he running? Did he end up running J.P. Morgan? 
I think he was working there. It's probably a whole thing, you know, with the son coming in and stuff like that. Uh, J.P. Pont Morgan, the the father, J.P. Morgan Sr. at the time, he was absent. I mean, he's getting pretty old at this time. Uh, he had sailed to Europe on March 13th, so junior, I guess, is who we'll call him. He was manning the helm in New York City. He was kind of in charge at this point. Um, I, you know, I don't know. He just decided, like, all right, I'm going to head off into retirement almost. Um, and then in the spring and early summer, we're getting a little like past here, uh, kind of into May, June time period. Uh, St. Louis and Philadelphia, they tried to float bond offerings, but were unsuccessful. So that was kind of a big scare to people. Like, all right, well, there might be a liquidity issue. You know, what? Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Okay, we should hit a quick break and then get back uh, to the rest of because this is all pre-panic. This is pre. Panic, well, but it's kind of starting. It's, okay. I mean, well, if you talk about the market downturn, it kind of it started in March of 1907. Okay. So that's when the market downturn, but the panic, it's hard to describe because there's not like a black and white, all right, this is when the panic started, this is when it wasn't happening, you know? Yeah. It's kind of just flown in Gradual. and out. All right, here's a quick break. Welcome back in. Uh, Let's keep hitting on 1907 here because we are getting towards sort of where the panic really, really sets in. So what happens next? Uh, I know they, Philadelphia and St. Louis, they tried to float those bond offerings, but they were not well received. So Yeah, so they're trying to raise money. And the, the reason that this is important is because you know a lot of these companies, not companies, cities, they might be running at a deficit. They might need to be raising money from just anyone. And they need that to fund the operations of their city. So if they can't, um, and there's no, you know, broad, the only thing that's there is uh, at a national level is the Secretary of the Treasury. So they can technically print money, but there's no Fed, there's no big institutions that can kind of help with that. So uh, at the time, the St. Louis Chronicle, or I believe it was the Chronicle, I just have written the Chronicle here. I know that there's a lot of them. And he says, money is commanding such high rates that it is impossible to float even gilt-edged securities at low figures offered by Philadelphia and St. Louis. So that you could see the creaks there, or the cracks there. Uh, and I guess everyone was worried at the time, but they didn't really know what was going to happen. So in late March, which we're going back a little farther, the Treasury deposited $12 million in the national banks. Everyone was confident, you know, that it was, quote, just a goalie or that they're, you know, providing the liquidity that was needed. But in April and May, the index dropped another 3%, with shipping and household goods down 12%, so really not much. But the, the markets are still continually going down. And then coinciding with the spring crash was the rise of the progressive movement with Teddy Roosevelt. So we're getting, you know, people worried about the liquidity of the markets, raising money, making a, you know, having enough money out there for investments. And at the time, there's that progressive movement. People are worried about the antitrust lawsuits. They're going to, you know, hamper some of these monopolies that are doing so well for the economy. I'm not going to say whether it was good or bad. You know, that's kind of a whole... We're not the experts to say who was good or bad here, but at the time, you know, he wanted to protect the community from the, quote, selfish economic interest of big business. This may have put fear into the heart of investors. That's kind of what I'm trying to get here, where there's these two things yeah. that may have worked together to uh, hurt investor confidence. I mean, it still exists today, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Corporate, you know, people say we're going to ease corporate tax rates. It's the like Stock a- goes up, yeah. Right. So, I mean, it's really not that different. People start to fear anyone that's cracking down on the big businesses. Uh, 
because <laughs> shareholders profit off big business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that is true. And it's um, it's easier to run a business when you are a monopoly. Uh, and then I guess yeah. a quote here to get the the administration, kind of the political mindset. So Teddy Roosevelt said, "They are I- these are instru- indispensable, excuse me, instruments of our modern civilization. But I believe that they should be supervised and so regulated that they shall act for the interest of the community as a whole." You know, a little bit of a political uh, grandstanding there, but you kind of see that the age of the monopoly was probably over at this point. Or if it was going to go on for a few years, you knew that the clock was ticking. When did uh, Standard Oil get broken off? Oh, gosh. We're going to hit that in season two. I think it's 19... It's early... Ni- it's before World War One, or at least before America enters World War One. So it's after the panic in 1907 right around the time that the Federal Reserve gets created. And there's a, there's a lot of other companies that get broken up too, but U.S. Steel actually didn't. But uh, it's kind of weird that they didn't, uh, and Standard Oil did. I don't know what happened there. But to get back to the timeline, in June 1907, New York City tried to float a 4% bond. So only a 4% interest rate uh, for $29 million, but they only got $2 million in subscription. So that worried them a ton. Again. So weird. Uh, oh, that's the, so weird that you can't get... It, the, like no one trusted the government for payback, or maybe it wasn't the it was not the trust. It was just a high like, enough yield. Yeah, no, the yield is probably it's definitely impactful there. Uh, I guess there's a few factors. Maybe they didn't trust that the government would be able to pay it back. Uh, maybe the yield wasn't high enough, or maybe there just wasn't money out there for it. You know, that's yeah. why they put. That's why the treasury injected twelve million dollars uh, in what was it March. Which that, doesn't seem like it'd be enough. I feel like the treasury was kind of guessing because they probably didn't have the stats to figure out like how much do no, we need to print, yeah. how much do we need to offer to the people or to the banks. And so yes, they're just yes. like, let's try 12. No, yeah. I mean, we'll see in the next few episodes here that there were a lot of different rocks that they uncovered. Like, oh, there's a problem here. Okay, let's solve that. Wait, that caused three problems here. Oh, wait, we uncovered like six other things happening with these companies. Uh, yes, I think that is a huge part of this where the treasury did not have any insight and the banking system was all, it's not organized um, and it's not all connected like it is today. You could argue that this were these were freer markets, but we'll see that the impacts of that uh, can kind of be more um, volatile, I guess you could say. There's a lot of unexpected things happening, but definitely the treasury, yeah, they were less powerful then. Um there was no Fed too, so there's no national bank to kind of help out with this. They're, you know, they're injecting the twelve million dollars. Typically, that goes through the Fed to the big banks, but now they're just doing it directly to the uh, to the to the national city banks. And there's barely any telephones laid down. It's really hard to communicate with people in a timely manner. Yeah, that's a big part of it as well. All right, uh, anything else? Uh, I guess, okay, oh, this is another very important part. So in the summer, the Bank of England, which, again, at the time, is more powerful than the United States from financial perspective. So they imposed a poor prohibition on U.S. finance bills, which means that loans, are they could not import gold. Uh, Amer- so American investors could not do that. It's confusing how gold works out here, but all you have to understand is that now American investors who were debtors or had something that they had to pay back, they cannot refinance obligations in London and the flow of gold reversed as Americans had to settle their payments for these finance bills. So it's hard to picture how gold fits into that, um, where they're kind of using it as either collateral or a way to get loans. 
and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But at the time, this forced a lot of Americans to, you know, actually settle their debts. So they couldn't refinance stuff, uh, which, again, that's tightening the liquidity markets, you know. Uh, or sorry, that's not the way to say it. They're you know tightening the system. Liquidity is drying up because of this, so that probably didn't help. And then another big event was in August 1st, U.S. Steel reported a 25% decline in bookings, which is huge. Yeah, that's yeah. I guess that's another sign of uh, liquidity dry up. Is businesses no one just didn't f- want to, or they couldn't afford it, or maybe they didn't want to. They didn't afford. Uh, yeah, they couldn't afford buying steel. I mean, that's one at the time, just a really easy indicator of how the country is growing. If U.S. Steel drops bookings by twenty five percent, I think that's a giant red flag. Like, if you were again, like as an investor at the time, if you're getting this information, it's very. I want to say, you know, you're getting it in newspapers or from talking to people. If you live in New York City, maybe you're t- closer to the hub of information. But at the time, if you saw these numbers, the, that would definitely concern you. And it makes sense that the market had dropped. Yeah. So what was the market like? Because this is what you're going into now the fall of 1907. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So from June through September, the market dropped another 8.1%. So that brought it down 24.4% for the to- or for the first three quarters of the year. So from... Say when it turned in March down to September, it was down 24.4%. And that seems like, you know, they're they're painting it in these books like a rapid decline, right? But when we think about it this year, it, it just shows how... It happened Yeah, it shows how much slower things happened then and how quickly things happen now. We got way worse than that in 2020 in, what, two weeks? So it's crazy how the time uh, the timelines compressed... Uh, in, in the modern world. I don't Do you know. think the drawdowns, like a market drawdown, was more concerning then? Because it feels like structurally, there was mm. they didn't know how to reform it. They didn't know how to change it. So it could like end up ending the system altogether. Yeah, I guess there was more of a, hmm, I don't know. That gets way out of my realm of expertise, yeah. if I have any on this. Uh, I don't know. That's a good question, though. Because I feel like, I mean, with only 1% participation and... Uh, no Fed. Mm-hmm. People are kind of winging it. They're kind of. It feels like this could crumble. If, yeah, no. Uh, there's definitely more risk of permanent loss. I'd say if you're an investor in, I mean, there's a lot of people that lost money permanently. But if you were say, I guess index funds weren't even a thing back then. But if you were investing in like an index fund, I guess you would worry more. Uh, yeah. Things seem way more fragile, and and they, and they likely were. Okay, well, I think that's going to do it for episode four. Next episode, we're going to dive into the early fall of 1907 and talk about some of the key figures who turned this market downturn into a full-blown panic. Yeah, there's um, going to be some There'll be some heroes, quote-unquote. I guess we'll see if J.P. Morgan's a hero or a villain. People paint him in both directions. But then there's some uh, characters out there that I don't want to say were... Total, Im- totally immoral, but they were acting so greedy. It, it we'll, we'll uncover the stories. It, it'll be interesting. Okay, and then as always, if we uh, if we got anything wrong or you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, the email is in the show notes. You can also find us on Twitter at CCM or at Chit Chat Money. That's our other podcast. So feel free to reach out there. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next episode. <laughs>